Chapter Eleven of the Story of Red Feather by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, at the Lower Crossing, Tallbear's Last Failure. Nothing could have shown more strongly the confidence of Melville Clarendon in Saladin than the course he followed in trying to throw the pursuing Sioux off his track. He had halted at a distance of less than fifty feet from the path, and, sitting erect on the back of the steed, he waited for the three Indians to ride past. At such times a horse is quicker than its rider to discover the presence of other animals, and the temptation to make it known by a whinny or neigh has often upset all calculations and overthrown the plans of the fugitive or scout. Melville knew the peril from this source but he had little misgiving about Saladin. He softly patted his neck, and knew he understood the situation well enough to hold his peace. But how would it be with the other animals? Would they betray their discovery of the motionless steed at the side of the trail? A faint neigh from them would be certain to give their cunning riders a clue to the truth, and checking their own horses, they would leap to the ground and be upon the youth before he could dash into cover. You may well understand, therefore, the anxiety of Melville when through the gloom he caught the dim outlines of the first horseman as he came opposite, closely followed by the others. The suspense was short. While the boy held his breath, the last of the three horsemen vanished in the gloom, and he was placed at the rear with enemies on both sides of him. The ruse of Melville had succeeded and the question now to be answered was as to what use he should make of his opportunity, if such it should prove to be. It would seem that nothing could be more reckless than for the youth, after eluding his three immediate pursuers, to return over the trail to the crossing. But only a moment's thought was necessary for him to decide to do that very thing. From where he sat on his pony, screened by bushes and rocks, he observed that the light from the burning buildings to the southeast was fast diminishing. The fire had been rapid, and before long total darkness would rest on the stream and plain again. It would therefore be safe for him to approach the edge of the creek, provided none of the remaining Sioux had crossed over waiting only long enough to make sure that the three Indians were beyond reach of the sound of Saladin's hooves, he gently jerked the bit and spoke softly to him. The steed stepped forward with as much care as his rider could have shown, and soon stood in the path again. Here Melville held him motionless a moment or two while he peered around and listened. Nothing was seen or heard of the Indians, and— Heading toward the stream, the horse advanced on a gentle walk. Melville kept his pony at a walk for no other reason than to prevent any betrayal from the sound of his feet. The distance was slight, and soon he came to a halt on the very edge of the stream, while the rider peering across failed to catch the faintest outline of the horsemen that were in sight a short time before. Nothing could have justified the risk of attempting to ride to the other bank, for if the Sioux were in the neighborhood, they would not only discover the youth, 
but would have him at such a disadvantage that escape would be out of the question. The lad held no such purpose, but, turning his animal to the right, began making his way down the stream toward the lower crossing near his own home. It was easy to do this by keeping close to the water, since the unevenness of the ground did not begin until a few yards or rods from the bank. The darkness was such that Saladin was left to himself, Melville knowing he could give him no help by any attempt at guiding him. The sagacious beast thrust his nose forward and, like an elephant crossing the stream, seemed to feel every foot of the way. Despite the extreme care, he had not taken a dozen steps when a rolling stone caused him to stumble, and the rider narrowly missed taking a header over his ears. Saladin quickly recovered himself, but at the moment of doing so the youth was startled by a whistle from the other shore, instantly answered by a similar call from the bank along which he was riding. This proved that not only were the main party waiting, but the three Sioux that had started to pursue the young fugitive had returned. But if the stumble of Saladin had revealed his whereabouts, Melville was still in great peril. Without waiting to assure himself on the point, he urged his pony to a brisk walk, never pausing until fully two hundred yards were placed behind him. Then, when he looked back and listened, he was convinced his fears were groundless and it was a simple coincidence that the signals which startled him were emitted at the moment of the slight mishap to his horse. So far as he could judge, he had a clear course now, and he allowed Saladin to advance as rapidly as he chose. His chief distress was concerning Dot. The withdrawal of Red Feather was so sudden that some unusual cause must have been at the bottom. The lad could not help thinking the chieftain should have given him a hint of his course before the youth learned it at such a risk to himself. He was not without fear that harm had befallen his beloved sister, but his confidence in Redfeather was perfect, and he knew that he would do his best to take care of her. Convinced that the Sioux at the upper crossing were the ones that had fired the buildings to the southeast, and that they belonged to Tallbear's band, it followed that something must have taken place to drive them from the siege of Melville's home. It might be that, learning of the flight of the children, they had scattered to search for them. It would seem that they were a small game for such a big effort, but the ill success that had marked Tallbear's brief career as a raider may have made him glad of even a small degree of success. Besides, it might be that only a portion of his party was on the hunt. But to Melville the most likely belief was the one that formed some time before, to the effect that company whose appearance had caused such excitement were white men numerous and strong enough to send the Sioux scurrying away to avoid a fight with them. It was this belief which caused Melville to seek the lower crossing, when there was much risk involved in the attempt. If father and a lot of his friends have scared off Talbert and his Sioux, they can't be far off. Climb down there, pard, mighty quick. It was a startling summons that thus broke in upon the reverie of Melville, but he quickly recovered from the shock, 
knowing by the voice that it was that of a friend. He had reached the lower crossing when a horseman that was awaiting him suddenly loomed in sight through the gloom and hailed him with a rough command to dismount. "'I don't see why I should get off my horse when he isn't stolen,' replied the youth with a laugh. "'Wild be sure if it isn't young Clarendon. Hello, Archie. Here's your younker boy, sure as you live.' It was the famous scout, Nat Trumbull, who spoke these cheery words, and, before the youth knew it, it looked as if a dozen horsemen had sprung from the ground and surrounded him. "'We're looking for engines,' added Nat. "'There was plenty of them a while ago, but they've become powerful scarce all of a sudden.' "'I've seen more than I wished,' replied Melville. "'But I guess you've frightened them off.' At this juncture the boy's father rode hurriedly forward through the group, and, leaning from his saddle, gratefully pressed the hand of his son and anxiously asked about Dot. The youth, as briefly as he could, told the story which is familiar to you. The amazement of the listeners was great, and to more than one it seemed impossible that the detested Red Feather should have proved himself a friend instead of the most cruel enemy of the children. "'Why, it's him we were after more than anyone else,' said Nat Trumbull. "'But if he's made a change like that, why, I'll shake hands with him and call the account Squire.' Mr. Clarendon's distress over the uncertainty about Dot was so great that the thoughts of all were turned toward her and when he asked that an effort should be made to trace her and Redfeather, Nat and the rest gave their eager consent, and the start was made without a minute's unnecessary delay. Nat Trumbull was disappointed because of his failure to locate Tallbear in his band. The outbreak of the Sioux was so sudden that even those who were best acquainted with their ways did not believe it was so near. But when the truth became known, the authorities saw only one right course to take. There were many hundred Sioux within the boundaries of Minnesota at that time, and unless the revolt was suppressed at once and with a strong hand, it would rapidly spread, with the most lamentable consequences. There was a hasty organization and gathering of forces to start after the raiders and bring them to terms before they should gain courage by any important successes. It was the ardent desire of the rangers under Trumbull to force Redfeather and his band into a fight where there would be no getting away on either side. The scout meant to hit hard when he did strike. This statement will make clear the course of the irregular cavalry, as they may be called, when they became aware that the Indians whom they were after were gathered around the home of Archibald Clarendon. That gentleman was eager for himself and friends to dash forward, but Nat reminded him that the presence of the Sioux and the fact that, although the barn was a mass of ashes and smoking ruins, his house stood intact, were proofs that the raiders had been unable to burn down the cabin or secure his children. Such being the case, Trumbull began maneuvering with a view of getting matters in such a shape that a fight would be certain. There were several glasses among the rangers, 
and in the deepening darkness they gave important aid. It was evident from the manner of the Sioux that they were not sure of the identity of the horsemen. Could they have used spyglasses like the white men, they could not have failed to learn the truth. Trumbull turned this uncertainty to his own advantage. He purposely held his men back to prevent the truth becoming known. But as the darkness increased, he kept edging to the southward, spreading the horsemen out to an extent that would have proved costly had the Sioux been sagacious enough to take advantage of it. Nat's force was too small to attempt to surround the Indians, and he was still hopeful of forcing them into a fight. He did not lose a minute, but worked farther and farther along, until all were far from that part of the horizon where they were first seen. But while Nat Trumbull was vigorously pushing things, it became known that two of the Sioux were hovering near and watching every movement. That these fellows were wonderfully cunning and quick was proved by their escape when both were charged by the horsemen. Despite everything that could be done, these scouts made off, and of course carried their important news to their chief. The flight of the Sioux scouts caused a change in the plans of Nat Trumbull. Knowing it was useless to try to surprise the dusky rogues, he brought his men together and rode rapidly toward the Clarendon cabin. He hoped to arrive before the raiders could get away and to administer sharp punishment to them. Trumbull approached the house and smoking ruins with care, for there was abundant chance for their enemies to hide themselves and give the white men a rattling volley before they could escape the peril. It required considerable time for the rangers to learn that none of their enemies were there, and then Mr. Clarendon himself discovered the door of his house open. Still uncertain of the truth, he and his friends waited some time before daring to venture within. The conclusion of this examination was the natural one, that the Sioux had fled, taking the children with them. But as it was clear they could not have gone far, Trumbull galloped with most of his men to the crossing, in the hope of coming upon the marauders there. He had no more than fairly convinced himself that he was in error again when Melville Clarendon rode up on Saladin, his father making his appearance shortly after. The light in the southeast had attracted the notice of the scouts some time before, and the story told by the youth led Trumbull to believe the main body were near the upper crossing, where doubtless they had made Redfeather prisoner. Accordingly, the dozen horsemen set their faces in that direction and struck into a rapid gallop. The leader was hopeful that, if the slippery scamps were located, he could reach them. He believed his men were as well mounted as they, and if only a fair chance were given, they would compel the others to fight. Nat rode at the head, with Mr. Clarendon and Melville just behind him. The keen eyes of the ranger peered through the darkness into which he was plunging so swiftly, on the alert for the first sign of an enemy. As he drew near the upper crossing, he slackened his pace slightly, those behind doing the same, with the exception of the settler and his son, who found themselves at the side of the leader. 
Ella, there's one of them, exclaimed Nat. The three saw the figure of an Indian running over the ground with great swiftness. Knowing his danger, he flung aside his blankets so that his flight was unimpeded and his exhibition of speed excited the admiration of his pursuers. Let him alone, added Trumbull. I don't want anyone else to interfere. He belongs to me. And then, to the astonishment of everyone, the scout made a flying leap from the saddle and bounded after the fugitive on foot. It was an odd chivalrous feeling which led him to do this. Inasmuch as the warrior had no pony, Trumpel meant that the contest between them should be without any unfair advantage to either party. The Sioux was running like a deer, but the white man beat him. Nat Trumbull is today one of the fleetest runners in the Northwest, and no doubt he felt a natural wish to show this Indian as well as his own friends what he could do in that line. It may be said that from the first the fugitive was doomed, for if Trumbull should prove unequal to the task of running him down, the cavalry would do it, and if his strangely absent comrades should rally to his help, they would be fiercely attacked in turn. Since the white man quickly proved his superiority, it must be admitted that the outlook for the fleeing warrior was discouraging from the beginning. Steadily and rapidly, Nat gained on the desperate fugitive until, in less time than would be supposed, he was almost at his elbow. "'Surrender, pard!' called out the scout. "'For you don't know how to run, and I've got you dead sure!' Realizing that there was no escape by flight, the Sioux dropped his rifle and, whipping out his hunting knife while still fleeing at the highest bend of his speed, he stopped short, wheeled about, and struck viciously at his pursuer with the weapon. But the veteran scout was expecting that very thing, and parrying the blow with admirable skill, he sent the knife spinning a dozen feet to one side. Dropping his own gun, Trumbull then dashed in and seized the warrior around the waist. "'It's you, tall bear, is it?' he said, recognizing his old antagonist. We'll settle this again by a wrestling match. If you can throw me, we'll let you go without a scratch. But if I fling you, then you're mine. Keep back, boys, and may the best man win. It was a curious scene, but the contest could not have been fairer. Trumbull waited till his opponent had secured his best hold, for Tallbear was as quick to identify his rival as the latter was to recognize him. The scout waited till the chief said he was ready. Then, like a flash, he dropped to a low stooping posture, seized each leg of the other below the knee with a grip of iron, and straightening up with marvelous quickness and power, sent Tallbear sprawling like a frog through the air and over his head. Despite the remarkable agility of the Sioux, he could not save himself but alighted on his crown with tremendous force. Not the least amusing part of this contest was that, in the instant Tallbear started on his aerial flight, he called out, Me surrender. Tallbear good engine. He love white. The crash of his head against the solid ground checked his words and left forever uncertain what the chieftain meant to say. He quickly recovered from the shock, 
for possibly it may be said he was becoming accustomed to such rough treatment and could stand it better than at first in the course of a minute or two tallbear staggered uncertainly to his feet and looking up in the faces of the horsemen who were on every side of him he was compelled to admit that he was their prisoner so it proved that the last essay of the chieftain who was on a little scout for himself was the greatest failure of them all and in the end it was fortunate that such was the fact for when the strong arm of the authorities was laid upon the raiders the chief had no trouble in proving that he had inflicted no serious harm to the settlers true he had destroyed some property and tried hard to do greater damage but as i have said he failed utterly End of chapter eleven